church we're visiting. We've been beginning to go through Jeremiah. If you're not a Christian, you're not used to coming to church, when you read this, you think probably it's a bit depressing. And there are lots of people who are Christians who, when I told them I was going to be speaking through Jeremiah, went, oh no. Um, I, it's, I don't think this is because of my personality. I love this book. Uh, and I think you'll find as we go through it that uh, God speaks to us. Jeremiah, uh, at this stage, we're reading the book, is probably a young man. He's been called to be a preacher of God's Word in Jerusalem. And basically, nobody wants to listen to him. Uh, he has some friends, but he is giving a message which people don't want to hear. And the chapter that we're looking at today is entitled in the NIV, Jerusalem Under Siege. Jeremiah 6, verse 1, flee for safety, people of Benjamin, flee from Jerusalem. Sound the trumpet in Tekoa, raise the signal over Beth Hakarim, for disaster looms out of the north, even terrible destruction. I will destroy the daughter of Zion, so beautiful and delicate. Shepherds with their flocks will come against her, they will pitch their tents round her, each tending his own portion. Prepare for battle against her, arise, let us attack at noon. But alas, the daylight is fading and the shadows of evening grow long. So arise, let us attack at night and destroy her fortresses. This is what the Lord Almighty says, cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, O Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so that no one can live in it. Now, please do keep your Bibles open because we'll be looking at this and we're going to go on to the other bits as well. I was thinking about this coming down that um, when I walked down here, I had music on my phone and if it came to a bit of music that I didn't think was suitable for the Sabbath day, I flicked on the next bit or a bit I didn't like, I flicked on to the next bit. Uh, I'm like a sort of typical middle-aged man who sits in front of a television and has the power of the switch, uh, the remote control, and just keeps flicking through different channels. I think that's like how we listen to the Word of God many times. We put it on shuffle, and if we don't immediately like it, we just flick on. We have a kind of pick-and-mix buffet version of the Scriptures. We go to the Word of God, and we take out the bits that suit us the bits that make us feel good. We switch and change. We pick and mix. Now, there are so many things that are wrong with that. Firstly, how stupid that we think that we know better than God. Secondly, that we allow our personal tastes and cultural pressures to determine what we think God should say to us. Then we miss out on so much. The bits we don't like and leave are the Word of God for us to build us up and change us. And sometimes if you stick with something, you find, whoa, I didn't know. And that's right, we don't know. And also I think it means we get what we think to be the sweet bits wrong as well. And that's, I think, true of Jeremiah. This is a tough book, but it's tough love, and it shows us in depth the love of God. And I think the way I want to entitle the whole of this is just get real. This is about reality. This is about real life. If you're not a Christian, this is really about you. If you are a Christian, this is also about you. This is about our life as it really is. 
It's not about the Disney version of life. It's not about the fantasy version of life that so many of us operate in. Eugene Peterson says this about Jeremiah. The task of a prophet is not to smooth things over, but to make things right. The function of religion is not to make people feel good, but to make them good. Love? Yes, God loves us, but His love is passionate and seeks faithful, committed love in return. God does not want tame pets to fondle and feed. He wants mature, free people who will respond to Him in authentic individuality. For that to happen, there must be honesty and truth. The self must be toppled from its pedestal. There must be pure hearts and clear intelligence, confession of sin, and commitment of faith. There are times when God's Word comes to you, and you will be incredibly comforted. And there are other times when God's Word comes to you, and it, and it seems to be ripping you apart inside. Never turn away from the Word of God, because it's all for your good. And that's how we approach this chapter. There is, a, just to give a little bit of the background, verses 1 to 5, uh, there's a cry to get out of the city. This is going back to chapter 4. The beautiful daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, is about to be destroyed. They're urged to run to a town that's about 12 miles away from there. Um, even at night, when battles were not normally fought, this is going to happen. The city is not safe. And there are five oracles that God gives, five different speeches that God gives in the rest of the chapter, and we're going to look at each one of those. And the first, and we're going to apply them to our own situation. Go on the next one. Pete, can you move on to the next one, please? I don't know what's wrong with my... First is uh, the real wounds of God's people, verses 6 to 8. Now, it's quite astonishing. This, this picture is really, really shocking because Jerusalem is God's city. The people in it are identified as God's people. That's what they say. And here is God saying, this is how you attack Jerusalem. It seems almost like treachery. Cut down the trees and build up the ramps. Um, if you're a Lord of the Rings trilogy fan, it's in the second film when they're attacking Helm's Deep and, you know, they... they uh, cut down the trees, and they build these scaling ladders. Well, that's what's being told here. Why? Why was God prepared to let that happen to the city of Jerusalem, to the people who were His own covenant people? The answer is given in verse 7, as a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. The city must be punished. It is filled with oppression." There is violent oppression of the weak. Social evils have led to profound moral decay. Oppression of other people breaches the covenant because all human beings are made in the image of God. There's a well of wickedness, not a well of purity. The wickedness is deep within and it pours out. Luke 6:45. the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. As Paul says in Romans, they are continually inventing new ways of doing evil. And it is a deep, deep wound. Now, that's the situation, I think, that we find ourselves in. That we're in a culture where there is 
a deep, deep wound in our culture and a deep, deep wound in our society where there are people who are being oppressed. I heard uh, this week of the first hundred million pound flat being sold in Britain, in London. Hundred million pounds for a flat. How, how do you do that? How can you spend a hundred million pounds on a flat? What kind of flat is it? I mean, is it the stairs made of gold? I mean, just it's almost inconceivable that there's something like that. At the same time, when there are people who are homeless, at the same time when there are people who live in poverty, there is oppression. There's oppression. We, uh, we're praying for alternatives. And there's an oppression that occurs when the unborn child is destroyed. There's an oppression. There's oppression that occurs when in, in work situations, there's oppression that occurs in so many different scenarios. I was listening to Ravi Zacharias' testimony this morning, and he talks about how in his home, his father was so violent to live in that kind of oppressive situation. In our world, people keep wanting to tell us how everything is great, how everything is fine, how everything is wonderful. And Jeremiah says, get real, get real. There's lots of good things in this world, but there is oppression. And in Jerusalem, the worst thing about Jerusalem, this is meant to be God's people, but she pours out her wickedness, violence and destruction resound in her. It is a deep, deep wound. God must deal with that. He warns, verse 8, take warning, O Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you. Now, I know a huge number of people, even people who profess to be Christians, and you might be one of them, you never want to hear this. You either want to hear about people out there who are doing bad things, but you don't want to hear about people here, and you certainly don't want to hear about yourself. And what people say is this. They say, I want to hear about a loving God. I'm having a really tough time in my life, and I just want to hear that everything's okay and that everything's going to be fine. But God is a loving God, and it's precisely because He's a loving God that He tells us what the real situation is. Can you imagine a child saying to their parent, you're nasty? Why? Because you told me if I put my hand in the fire, it would get burnt. You're nasty. No, they're not nasty. They're telling the truth. God warns because He loves. That is the reality of the situation. And it may be really uncomfortable. I think it's uncomfortable for people who are not Christians. I think it is uncomfortable for many people who are Christians as well. We don't really want to hear how wounded our culture and our society and our lives really, really are. We see other people. We say, oh yeah, they've got real problems. They've got psychological problems. They're really struggling. You can understand this because of this death or because of this illness or because this happened to them. But it's funny, it's always them. It's always them. We had an interesting exercise yesterday when the kind of leaders of the church met, and we were about 30 of us through there. And uh, I asked people to write down things that they wanted to repent of, that we should repent of, individually or collectively. That's quite uncomfortable. It's quite difficult. But it's the reality of the situation. God warns us because... He loves us. 
Second thing, we'll go on to verses 9 to 15. Let's move on to that. And let's read these words. This is the second oracle that comes from God. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Let them glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as a vine. Pass your hand over the branches again like one gathering grapes. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so that they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them and they find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord and I cannot hold it in. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the young men gathered together. Both husband and wife will be caught in it and the old, those weighed down with years, their houses will be turned over to others together with their fields and their wives. When I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them. Jeremiah has to go through like a gleaner through all the corn stacks with the message of the Lord. He has to go and tell people who are not willing to listen. I mean, it's just a really, really tough call. You, if you're a, a preacher and you're preaching people or, or coming to hear the word and that's fine, what if people just say, I don't want to hear this, I'm out of here. You're not very successful. You know that Jesus wasn't really a very successful preacher. And neither was Jeremiah, not by the standards that so many people would gather success to be. And notice the things that are here. Verse 10, there's the closed mind. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so that they cannot hear. Literally, their ears are uncircumcised. In Acts 7, verse 51, Stephen says this, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. The sin of a closed mind. We so easily fall into the trap of saying, I don't want to listen. I'm not listening to this. I'm not listening to this. I'm not listening to that. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening sounds great. But we often add to that, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, and please tell me what I want to hear. And if you don't tell me what I want to hear, I'm not going to recognize your voice. And it's incredible how close-minded we can become. Now, I know that people say that when you're a religious person, you close your mind, you're not open-minded. Again, get real. All human beings have closed minds. We need to have them opened. We need to be able to think outside. I mean, you ever, if you ever go, you ever go to one of those meetings and just does your head in when the guy comes in and your boss and says something like, right, let's all think out the box. And you go, oh no, here we go. And usually it's in a, just a, their box. Um, I once went to one of those meetings and I started thinking out the box and the guy said, no, you can't do that, you can't do that. I said, why not? He said, wrong box. <laughs> you know, it just, it just, we, we are like that. We have closed minds, so we don't want to hear. And the thing is, we don't want to hear because we're prejudging what it is. We think it's wrong. We think it's, we just don't want to know that. 
And what God is doing is he's just drawing us in and we see a much, much bigger picture. It's like when you're invited through a door and you say, I don't want to go in, in I, I won't go in, I won't go in because I can see a little bit through the door and it looks horrible, but you actually walk through the door and it turns out to be beautiful. Same way, we say, oh no, 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 I, I, no, no, I, I'm not going to listen to that. I am not going to listen. The word of the Lord is offensive. It says they find no pleasure in it. The psalmist we sang in Psalm 119, direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. But there are lots of religious people who do not want to hear the Word of God. You know, in a survey that was done of evangelicals in Britain that was just published last week, a significant number of evangelicals do not regularly read the Bible. How, in what sense can they possibly be evangelical? Oh, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is my Savior. I live for Jesus. It's just words. No, you don't. You pick and mix with Jesus. This is the Word of the Lord. And he's, God is trying to speak to us and we close our minds to what God has to say. Real brokenness because we have closed minds. Again, I, I know that some of you who are not Christians, you kind of, you've already made up your mind about lots of things. And I would actually urge you to be genuinely open-minded and to say, okay, let me look at this. Let me think about this. The call to follow Jesus Christ is not a call to have a closed mind. It's a call to have an open mind. Verses 11 and 12 talks about the horror that happens. He has to go and tell the people that they're going to lose their land, their homes, their families are going to be sent into exile. He has to go and tell everyone, even the children playing in the street. Move on to the next one, Pete. In the 2 Corinthians 2 Verses 15 to 16, for we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are the smell of death, to the other the fragrance of life, and who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity like men sent from God. The real gospel message, if it really gets home to real people, causes a reaction, some of which is from people saying, I get it, I see it, I want to follow Jesus. Another which says, I get it, I see it, I hate it. And I hate those who put it forward. He has to tell the lot. He has to tell the young men and the husband and wife and so on. He couldn't keep it in. God's anger against the injustice and against the oppression and against the sin in that society, he couldn't keep it in. And he warns the people because he wants to save the people. All are greedy for gain. All are on the make. And especially, he's talking there about the priests. If you look at verse 13, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. This is true. I was looking at this verse and actually writing these words down when Mary came into my office and handed me a package that she had been given. And it was a package of 16 CDs. Now, some of you are in an ultimate Frisbee team, and I'm going to give you these so that you can play Frisbee with them, because they were sent from a, a church in America, and it's basically the title of the CDs is Why the Prosperity Gospel is True, or, or something like that. And I thought, okay, 
I thought, Marty, you've just given this to me when I'm talking about priests and prophets. I've just been reading about priests and prophets being greedy for gain, telling people what they want to hear. And she went out, and it was a bit like a guilty secret. As soon as she went out the door, I stuck it in the player, and I started listening to it. If a Christian was allowed to swear, somebody would have heard an oath. But anyway, I had to stop. I was, I was just going absolutely crazy listening to it. There was this guy coming on, and he was saying to people things like, um, oh, I'll not do the southern accent, but you know, this little big southern drawl, and he just said, uh, you know, there are people who say that God doesn't want you to be rich. Listen, God wants you all to be millionaires. God wants you just in. You just got to be prosperous and be blessed in every way. And, and there's, there's 16 CDs of this stuff. And I think I would, I would, it would drive me absolutely insane uh, because it's just so, I mean, it sounds great. And, and every now and then he would stop and he would say, are you with me? And they go, yes, brother, preach it, brother. And I'm going, no, brother, shut up, brother. And it's just, it's, it's, it. of course, if you tell people God wants you to be wealthy, God wants you to be healthy. It sounds great and it feels good and you all walk out with a real buzz, but it's rubbish. And it does harm. It does so much harm. There is real brokenness in this world. You can't go and tell people what you think they want to hear or what they want to hear. We have to tell people what God says and what is the reality the people are broken. Verse 14, they dress the wound of my people as though it, no, we're not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. I had the privilege of visiting Andy and Jenny. For those who don't know Andy and Jenny, uh, we used to come to the church here. They're now in Fife. Um, their four-month-old baby, Oliver, uh, died on Christmas Day. And I visited them this Friday. And they're incredible people. They are doing so well. They're doing well because with all the hurt and all the pain and all the suffering, they're holding on to Christ. And God's people are really helping them, except the ones, of course, who want to come and give the message and say, well, the baby was going to get well. Or they come and say, peace, peace. There is no peace. God wants to heal and bring shalom, to bring peace, to, to bring to bring completeness and well-being and tranquility. God wants to do that, and yet religious people, including professing Christians, go around and bring another kind of peace which is not peace at all. It's a lie. Goebbels said, the bigger the lie, the more people are likely to believe it. It's a lie which dresses the wound, covers over the wound, but allows the wound to fester and pus. R.K. Harrison says the most blatant form of spiritual deception is to proclaim peace when none exists. Calvin says the bolder anyone who professes to, to heal, if he be unskillful, the more disastrous will be the issue. I do not want a doctor who will tell me how well I am if I am sick. Do you understand how insane that is? To go to your, your, your surgery and the doctor knows that you don't like to hear the word cancer, or the doctor knows that you don't like to hear the word, um, you know, the word swine flu or something. So the doctor is basically, oh, you're fine, you're fine. And then write down in the notes, this person is really ill. The people are broken. And what's happening in overall, I believe, in the church in our country is that the people are broken. And if you listen 
Nine times out of ten to any religious service on a radio, it's somebody standing up and saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace, refusing to recognize where we were at. Oh, Jerusalem, said Jesus. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known what would bring you peace. We sang that, Psalm 29, the Lord gives strength to His people. The Lord blesses His people with peace. And you see, it leads to a callous conscience, verse 15. Are they ashamed? No, they're not. They don't even know how to blush. They don't even know how to blush. Don't look at this. Uh, I saw the advert for it, and I didn't even bother. Um, the adverts on for Channel 4's new series, The Joy of Teen Sex. If you want to know how degraded Britain has become, all you have to do is look at that. And I just, I, I thought of these words. We don't even know how to blush. We are, we are such a broken, messed up, confused, twisted, sick society, and we boast about it. We don't even know. Let's go on to the next one, please. There's a path. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I guide you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evil men. The prophet is asking, what can you do with people who will not even ask the way when they are lost? Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. You'll find rest for your souls. Ancient doesn't necessarily mean good. When an older person says, ah, I remember in the days when the land was flowing with milk and honey and everyone was fine and we always left our doors open and people loved one another and so on and so on, you just say, well, uh, we pray that your memory is not restored to the reality. Ancient doesn't necessarily mean good, but what is, Jeremiah is saying here is look for the good way. Look for a way that's been from the beginning. We look, we ask, and we don't just stand there. We are to walk in it, and we will find rest for our souls. Jesus said the same thing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus offers us a redirection, a new way to live our lives, a new way that is real. We need to, to get real. Verses 16 to 20. Let me just read these, or rather verses 17 to 20. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. Therefore, hear, O nations, observe, O witnesses, what will happen to them? Hear, O earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and have rejected my law. What do I care about incense from Sheba or sweet calamus from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable. Your sacrifices do not please me. There's fake worship, and by worship, I'm talking about the whole of life. In Jerusalem, the temple had been refurbished. It was a beautiful building. The sacrifices had been reinstated. King Josiah had begun reforms in terms of people reading and, and learning from God's Word, and that was great. But God comes to His people, and He says, it's not enough, it's not enough because your worship is based on form, not substance. It's not from the heart. Heart obedience is required. What's happened is the people in Jerusalem are religious people who offer God the best of everything, 
accept love. They don't love God. They have big fancy buildings. They have elaborate ceremonies. They care about the outward form of worship, but they don't love God. They bought incense from Sheba, which is current-day Yemen, sweet cane from India, and God says, I don't care. I just don't care. I don't care where you bring it from. I don't care what you do with it. They are not pleasing to me. They are not acceptable. Not whilst there's injustice and wrongdoing and evil going on in the lives and communities of His people. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? 1 Samuel 15, 22. To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Calvin says this, we see at this day that men cannot rightly be taught except we carry on war against that external splendor with which they will have God to be satisfied. As then men deceive themselves with such trifles, it is necessary to show that all these things which hypocrites obtrude on God without sincerity of heart are frivolous trumperies. You'd never say that, would you? You wouldn't say having a pulpit and chairs and a building and music and um, Sam singing and or whatever, you never say, oh it's, oh, it's frivolous. It's frivolous trumperies. Yes, it is. It is if our heart is not devoted to God. You know, it's strange in the discussion that we've, we've had on worship within the free church. Whatever the rights and wrongs of the position, you know where I stand, obviously, whatever the rights and wrongs of different positions that people have, at the end of the day, I just honestly think that God looks and said, I don't care. It doesn't matter if your heart is not right. I've seen men, and I expect this to happen again on Tuesday when I go to presbytery, get up and be so angry and so passionate. About what? About external things. And they call it purity of worship, but it's not purity of worship because purity of worship comes from the heart. Um, a religion that manipulates objects is easy. Heart reorientation is costly. Josiah's reformation here was not enough. Spiritual renewal is needed. That's real worship. We're told to get real in our worship. You know, we just, we're so obsessed by, by trivial things. I don't know if you've ever had this discussion. If you're not a Christian, right now at this moment in time, Block your ears because you don't really want to hear this. Um, I don't know if you've ever had a discussion with somebody. I, I had a discussion recently about, is it okay to raise your hands when you're praising God? Now, some of you have no inhibitions like that. And others of you would like to, but you do have inhibitions. And others of you are good, solid Presbyterians, and your only times your hands are going to be raised is when you're in heaven and the Lord commands you to. But, but that's fine. That's fine. Look, you don't want to go in a building where everyone's raising their hands and you feel, oh, I've got to do that because everyone else is doing it. Or you don't want to be in a place where someone raises their hand and says, oh, should I be doing that? Again, who cares? If someone is raising their hands because their hearts are full of praise to God and they genuinely love Jesus and they're not doing it to draw attention to themselves and they're not doing it because um, they're trying to channel the Holy Spirit and if they do it this way, then it'll happen. If they do it that way, then it won't happen. No, if they're just because it's just their way of praising God, then that is what God cares about. Not all the rules and regulations that every single culture and every single church, church actually brings in. God is concerned about real worship, which is a life that is committed to God, which recognizes that when we feed 
the homeless in here on Tuesday night. That's as much worship as when we say a prayer in here. Okay? It's the whole of life. Verse 21, very short oracle from the Lord. I will put obstacles before this people. Fathers and sons alike will stumble over them. Neighbors and friends will perish. Real relationships. Josiah is saying as, uh, not Josiah, Jeremiah is saying as God comes and he brings us his word. It may disrupt relationships. To you who believe this stone is precious, is speaking of Jesus, but to those who do not believe, says Peter, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. Look, our relationships are in a mess and we need Christ to come in. But when God's word comes to us, sometimes that disrupts relationships. Sometimes it disrupts and makes them better. But sometimes it disrupts and there's a price. And sometimes it heals. Verses 22 to 30, final part. This is what the Lord says. Look, an army is coming from the land of the north. A great nation is being stirred up from the ends of the earth. They're armed with bow and spear. They are cruel and show no mercy. They sound like the roaring sea as they ride on their horses. They come like men in battle formation to attack you, O daughter of Zion. We've heard reports about them, and our hands hang limp. Anguish has gripped us, pain like that of a woman in labor. Do not go out to the fields or walk on the roads, for the enemy has a sword, and there's terror on every side. Oh, my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Mourn with bitter wailing as for an only son, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. I've made you a tester of metals and my people the ore, that you may observe and test their ways. They're all hardened rebels going about to slander. They're bronze and iron. They all act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely to burn away the lead with fire, but the refining goes on in vain. The wicked are not purged out. They are called rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. The enemy comes in like a flood. The enemy sounds like the roaring sea, powerful, deafening, awe-inspiring, swift with their horses and chariots. The people stand confused and say, where can we run to? Their hands hang limp. They have nowhere to go, nowhere to turn to. It's like, um, reminded me of the old Neil Young song. Blue, blue windows beyond the stairs, yellow moon on the rise, big birds flying across the sky, throwing shadows on our eyes. Leave us. Helpless, helpless, helpless. Baby, can you hear me now? The chains are locked and tied across the door. Baby, sing with me somehow. We are helpless people with no real power. People are told to mourn and to repent. Amos same message, Amos 8.10, I will turn your religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Jeremiah is the refiner. The refining of silver involved the silver being put in the, the ore being put and the dross being burned off. But verse 28, God says, my people have become so hard so like bronze and iron, so wielded into corruption and false religion and false worship that it's useless. The die is cast. The invasion must come. The kingdom must fall. 
Jeremiah's preaching in one sense failed, but God's word did not. It did happen. John 15, 22, Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse. If you recognize this, we live in this world where there is so much evil and so much wrong, and that includes within us, that our only hope is to flee to Jesus Christ. We're all running, but where? You run away into yourself, that's no use. Into false religion, that's no use. Or you run to Christ, you get real, you get real life. Do you know what salvation is? Do you know how you become a Christian? It's when you stop running in terms of your own life, and when you just, when you say, Lord, I can't. I'm stuck. I, I don't understand. I, I can't. This whole world doesn't make sense to me. I can't believe the evil that is there. I, I, I accept the world as it is, and I can see that there's so much good, but it's so mangled by this evil. What can I do? And you can't save yourself, and you just simply say, Lord Jesus, save me. And that is it. You don't become religious and try and earn your way to God. You don't. And He does accept you. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But Jeremiah the prophet is saying to the people, come back! And they hate him for it. You can choose. And you can choose to be refined. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9, this is what Peter says to the Christians. And if you are a believer, please bear this in mind. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I hate that, that, those CDs. And they're going in the bin. You can have them for whatever purpose you want. Clay pigeon shooting, fine. Just take them. Um, take them as long as you're not going to listen to them, because I, I hate all that thing that's so anti-biblical of Kenneth Hagin and all these guys who are saying, you get the gospel because it's going to make you richer. It's just, you know, your faith is going to be tried. You have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, but your faith is in Jesus Christ. You love Jesus Christ. You believe in Jesus Christ even though you do not see Him, and you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy even in the midst of the most dreadful circumstances. That's the reality of the Christian life. The reality of the Christian life is it's really hard. The reality of the Christian life is that you will go through really, really tough times. You will know times of great blessing and times of great peace, but also times of great tribulation. The reality of the Christian life is not if I go to church a little bit more, if I read the Bible a little bit more, if I pray a little bit better, if I'm just a wee bit nicer to my neighbors, then the quid pro quo is God will give me, bless me more. The reality of the Christian life is if you serve Jesus wholeheartedly, fully committed, you will experience trials because that's the only way how you and others can know that it's for real. You will experience trials, but you will know at depth and a, a, a real joy that 
it's impossible for anyone to grasp what that means. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what Charles Wesley wrote. Great, great words that describe it. That's why I find this passage in Jeremiah incredibly relevant for our culture. Because it is going down the tubes. Because it is in a mess. And unless God has mercy on this nation and restores us, no politician, nobody is going to come and save us. And we are certainly not going to save ourselves. But Christ has come. And Christ is here. And as Christ works in our lives, that changes absolutely everything. That is reality. Karl Marx said that religion was the opiate of the people. And he was right. For a lot of people, it is that. It is a drug that takes them away from reality. But Jesus Christ is the person who wakes us up to reality. Because politics is the opiate of the people, and television is the opiate of the people, and sex is the opiate of the people, and everything is the opiate of the people if they won't get real. But here, we can get real, and we can really know Jesus. I loved being with, uh, let me finish with this, I loved being with the uh, leaders in the church yesterday because I looked around and just thought, what a bunch. You know, really, seriously, what a bunch. Um, nobody in their right mind would choose this law, and, and I was including myself in that. You know, but the reality is God has. God has brought us together, and this is real. These are real people seeking to serve a real God in the real world. May all of us seek to do that. I'm going to ask Stephen Allen if you'll come and lead us in prayer. Stephen.